It's lovely to be back with you in Chesterfield. And just this morning as we were driving down here, Caroline said, oh, look at the countryside on the doorstep. Yes, so um, don't bother coming to Bournemouth. <laughs> if you come to Bournemouth, all you see are tourists. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely to be here with you. And actually, last Sunday, I saw David Hunt. Do you remember David Hunt? He did a missionary Sunday for you some years ago, and he asked me to send his love to you all as well. And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to look at these verses that were read to us, verses 16 to 20. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we can read your word, and we thank you for that. What a privilege. And by your grace, we ask for help to understand it, apply it to our lives, believe it, put it into practice, and follow Jesus Christ with all our lives. Amen. I remember, I don't know how many years ago it was now, but Caroline and I were driving down to Rousley to the um, Outlook. Is it still there? Is it still? Right. Uh, and we were going there, and it was a nice day, and we were driving over the hills, driving down into Rousley, when we saw it was just covered with a thick layer of fog. And we drove down into the little outlet and we entered into this thick mist. It was cold. It was damp. You could hardly see anywhere around you. It just made everything so miserable. And I was thinking, I wonder how many Christians in their Christian life have driven down into a kind of fog of doubt. <coughs> and it's cold and miserable and they can't see where they're going. The amazing thing here, if you look at verse 17, that here the 11 disciples have gone to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. They thought, this must have been fantastic. Don't you wish you could have an experience like that, where you meet with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and they worshipped him. See the next three words? Some doubted. Maybe you're in that fog this morning and you came in and they asked you how you were and you shook them by the hand, you smiled and you told a lie. You said you were okay, you said you were fine, where really you are really struggling. And actually sitting where you are now, you wonder why you've come here at all because you just have so many that just seem to be in this fog. Well, maybe you haven't come, and maybe you're watching <laughs> at home and thinking, oh, I couldn't be bothered to go. I just got so many doubts. Well, maybe in the next few weeks, you're going to face massive doubts, and you're here because this will give you some help this morning. Lots of things cause doubt. Do you remember Nathaniel at the end of John's Gospel, chapter 1? The thing that caused him doubt was his own prejudice. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he had real problems, doubts, because of his prejudice. Or you just need to think of John the Baptist when he was in prison. And suddenly, confusion seems to batter him. And he says to his disciples, go and ask Jesus whether he's the one who was to come or should we expect another one? He was really struggling because... 
his circumstances were such that it filled him with confusion. Or do you remember Jesus himself? When he's been tempted and the tempter says to him, Are you, if you are the Son of God? If you are the Son of God. And that was just a direct satanic attack. It wasn't due to confusion. It wasn't due to prejudice. It was just a, a, a naked satanic attack trying to make him doubt if you are the Son of God. Well, the truth is, and this is my first point, followers of Jesus can struggle with doubts. Bannister Forsyth was a man of about 16, 17, 18, living in Royal Leamington Spa, very wealthy, a family, good prospects ahead of him, but the family would always go to church on Sunday. That was the done thing. And he was sitting at the end of the pew, and he was just daydreaming through the service. It happened to be a missionary Sunday, but he didn't listen to one word. He never did. I mean, going to church was just something you did on a Sunday morning. You didn't have to engage with it. You just had to plonk your body on the seat. And he was just daydreaming through it when it got to the last hymn. And the preacher announced the last hymn, and it was an old... Sankey missionary hymn, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, and lo, I am with you always. It was based on these verses that we read a few minutes ago. And Bannister Forsyth says that he heard a voice speaking to him audibly. He says he actually heard it with his ears saying, I want you to be a missionary in South America. Well, he looked to see who was talking to him. <laughs> there was nobody there. Nobody else had heard the voice, but heard him speak distinctly. And he said, I, I can't be a missionary in uh, South America. And then the next verse of the uh, missionary hymn was sung, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, and lo, I am with you always. And so he thought, well, I, I can't be a missionary. I couldn't survive. And the next chorus came, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And by the end of the hymn, all his arguments had been defeated, and he realized that God had called him to be a missionary in South America. So he went home and told his parents. Well, they were horrified. I mean, Christianity wasn't something that got hold of you in your heart. <laughs> that was just, you just went to church on Sunday. That was it. Wasn't expecting any more of them. And now their son wanted to be a missionary. Anyhow, he thought he ought to apply for a missionary organization in South America. So he applied to the Evangelical Union of South America and he went for an interview. At the interview, the interviewee realized he wasn't even converted <laughs> and shared the gospel with him and gave him some gospel booklets to read on the train going back to Royal Leamington Spa. And he said, on God's wonderful railway, he was converted. Well, he went to Bible college. Then he went off in 1927. He went over as the eighth Protestant missionary of modern days to Brazil. And exciting times. It was just like the book of Acts all over again. He had been there about three years, and Mr. Herneman, the head of the uh, mission in this country, was coming out to visit the various mission stations, and Bannister Forsyth was to translate for him. Well, that was all right when they spoke Portuguese, but as they moved up into the Andes, they didn't speak Portuguese, they spoke Spanish. And he thought, why on earth did they ask me to do the <laughs> translating? I, I, I can't translate it into Spanish. And so they're going there, and on the last day, they get to the Andes, and Mr. Herneman gets up and preaches in Spanish. And Bannister 
Christmas life is real. He worried about this for 30 days. How was I going to... So afterwards, he said to uh, Mr. Herndon, why didn't you tell me you could speak Spanish? He said, I can't. So when you preached in Spanish, he says, I didn't, I preached in English. And when you didn't get up to translate, I thought they understood. Uh, these incredible things, remarkable things were happening. They were um, stoned, they were chased from village to village. It was so exciting, arrested, imprisoned, real pioneer missionary life. Had a supernatural call, supernatural experiences. Married Edith Payton, they had a little girl, and then Edith became very ill. She wanted to come back to this country. And on board the ship coming back to Great Britain, she died. Very bitterly. When he got back to this country, he was totally broken down. He didn't know what he was. He didn't know what he did. He was just completely in a fog of utter doubt. Well, he was given some rest got some friends, he was actually taken to the Keswick Convention and he heard about the glory of Christ again and bit by bit he was restored but he was utterly broken, even though he'd had such fantastic supernatural experiences, he was now in a fog of doubt and if you look at verse 17 here in Matthew 28 we learn that actually we can doubt anything when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. We're not told what they doubted. We're just told they doubted. Maybe they doubted that Jesus Christ really had died or had really been resurrected or this really was Jesus. We're not told what they doubted. Maybe they saw the others worshipping and they, they doubted whether Jesus really was divine. I mean, that was a big thing to take into their heads as, as Jews who believed in the uh, correctly that there's only one being who is God. How could there be three persons, you know, and they, maybe they were doubting the deity of Jesus Christ. Maybe they were doubting that Christianity was right. Is this really the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures? Maybe they were doubting whether this might be right for them, but I don't think it's right for me. I mean, it's very costly following Jesus Christ, isn't it? Demands quite a lot, i.e. everything, and Jesus has just been crucified. What's going to happen to us? And so maybe they doubted that this was right for them. We're not told what they doubted. We're just told they doubted. It might have been their emotions. It might have been their circumstances. It might have been satanic. We're not told what they doubted. We're not told why they doubted. We're just told they doubted. And Christians can doubt everything. So what we must do next is we must remember that doubt is not unbelief the problem is when we have doubts we feel <laughs> we're not believing and so we've got doubts we say well i can't be a christian if i've got these doubts how can i be a believer in jesus christ if i'm doubting all these things but doubt and unbelief are not the same to help you understand that just look at the opposites what is the opposite of faith it's unbelief What's the opposite of knowledge? It's doubt. Doubt is not when you don't believe something. It's when you don't know. You're not sure. You don't understand it. So you have doubts. And doubt is not 
the same as unbelief. And at certain times, Christians are more vulnerable to doubts than at other times. You know, you can be at university and you can have someone who is a rabid atheist and they come and say, you're not a Christian, are you? You say, yes. And they say, well, what about this? What about that? What about the other? And they say, throw so many arguments at you and you haven't heard half of them and you feel, oh, I don't know the answers to these. Uh, I'm totally confused. And you think, oh, I can't, I can't be a Christian, you know. But that's doubt. That's not unbelief. And certain things cause us to be especially vulnerable to doubt. Just look at verse 16. It says, then the 12 disciples. It says, then the 11 disciples. And here, these 11 disciples, they would have been emotionally battered. Judas had once been one of the 12. He had gone out preaching with them. He had been with Jesus' disciples. He had been working uh, wonders and seeing Satan uh, fall from heaven kind of thing. And yet he had turned away from Jesus Christ, turned his back on the disciples, betrayed Jesus Christ, sold him as a common slave, and then gone and committed suicide in chains. And when you, that's been your friend, it's been your co-worker, that's been your, your person in the congregation with you, you feel emotionally battered. If they behave like that, well, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe uh, we should all be like that. It's really, really painful when a friend of yours who is a follower of Jesus Christ turns their back upon the things of God, goes away and just laughs at you for believing. It's even more painful when it's a leader. I read last week of a minister who had preached in his church on Easter Sunday. This was several years ago, not just two weeks ago. And the next Sunday, he stood up in front of his congregation and he said, I'm an atheist. Very shocked his congregation. Uh, that's similar to what Judas had done. Judas had turned his back and gone away and, and, and they felt battered emotionally. And that is a real area where it makes us vulnerable for doubt. A second reason we can be vo more vulnerable to doubt than others is because we are intellectually confused. Look again at verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. What on earth are we going backwards for? We don't want to go back to Galilee. We should be in Jerusalem getting everybody together, and then we should beat up Herod and Pilate, and then we should go and conquer the country, and then we should march on Rome, and we, we should... We should conquer the world. That's what we should be doing. What are we doing, just the 11 of us going back to Galilee? What on earth is God calling us to go backwards for? Surely this is all wrong. It shouldn't be like this. And maybe you feel like this in your own life. Maybe you feel that, you know, since you've become a Christian, you've ended up getting divorced. Huh? 
What the hell is God doing? You know, he should be blessing me. And it all seems to have gone wrong. Or, or my health is broken. And you know, I've been praying for healing and, and, and it just hasn't come. And I've seen other people and God's answered their prayers but not mine. And what's God doing? It just all seems to be going wrong. Or you're reading the Bible and you suddenly find a verse and it just seems doesn't make sense. You say, that can't be true. And you have these intellectual problems because God seems to be doing the wrong thing. It just, you know, you think, well, if I was God, I would be going in the opposite direction. I would be making everything different. You know, why are my family and friends not converted? Why are my neighbors so hostile to Christianity? Why is my health in so much pain? And on and on we can go. It seems as if we, instead of marching on Rome, which we think we ought to be doing, we've been sent back to Galilee. Intellectually confused and then physically exhausted. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Oh dear, why couldn't Jesus just tell us in Jerusalem? Much easier. Look, we've been there with him so many days in Jerusalem. And then he tells us to go back to Galilee. Well, that's a 70 to 80 mile walk. And we've gone back to Galilee. Now we've got to climb the mountain. I mean, it just seems as if he's making it more difficult than it has to be. He's making it much more difficult. He just seems to be adding difficulty to difficulty in our lives. Why doesn't he just make it easier? Why are my finances so difficult? Do you feel like that? You know, you look at your finances at the end of the month <laughs> and they're not there. You know, I remember Roger Carswell saying that money talks. It says goodbye. <laughs> and it does at the beginning of the week, month. And you think, why, why does God just make me struggle? Do you know why I read these wonderful stories of God providing for, you know, Hudson Taylor in China? Oh, I'm struggling struggling so much or my health is struggling so much or my family is struggling so much or my job is struggling so much and not only that but then you're trying to serve the Lord and everything seems to be going wrong in the church my ministry is so so discouraging I'm trying to bring these young people to Christ and all I get is the parents telling me off that their children are misbehaving <laughs> And, and you, you go home after you've done your ministry and you think, this is so discouraging. This is so tiring. Surely God can't be with me in this. Surely I must be in the wrong place. This can't be right. You know, when you're physically tired, you are very vulnerable to doubt. When you are intellectually confused, you're very vulnerable to doubts. When you are emotionally battered, you are very vulnerable to doubts. So you need to recognize the next sub-point, which is that doubts can be stepping stones to growth. Jesus didn't rebuke these people for their doubts. He didn't reject them with their doubts. He showed them the way forward. And within a month or two, they, they were leading the church powerfully. You see, doubts... Don't disqualify us. 
doubt a bit like hunger pains. They show that there's something needed in your life. And then you can find the answers to your doubts. And then you're much more strong in the things of God. Tim Keller says, Christians have to learn to doubt their doubts and believe their beliefs. The problem is that they doubt their beliefs and believe their doubts. And we've got to learn to doubt our doubts, believe our beliefs, and find the answers to our doubts. So Bannister Forsyth went to the Keswick Convention, and there he was reminded of the glory of Jesus Christ. There he found that whatever his circumstances were, Jesus Christ was Lord over his circumstances. There his doubts were uh, dealt with, and he became stronger. And so he went back to Brazil as a missionary and served about another 60 years in the Christian ministry. Indeed, he preached here in this pulpit when he was in his 90s because he had been dealt with. His doubts didn't destroy him. They became stepping stones to being a stronger believer. So let's look at how to deal with doubts. This is verses 18 to 20. Someone once said that um, they went to a well and there was a bucket there and they put the bucket down the well and then they pulled it all out and the bucket was so old and dry that the water just kept running out of the bucket. It was useless. But after a while, the bucket got wet and the wood swelled a little bit and it became a really useful bucket. Well, maybe you're a bucket this morning. <laughs> And maybe you got a bit dry and you're leaking and there's doubts there and you need to be put into the water so that it refreshes you. Two things are needed to deal with doubts. First of all, to see who Jesus is. To see who Jesus really is. If you look at the end of Mark's Gospel, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 16 and verse 7, you will find that the women go to the tomb and they meet an angel, a young man there, and he tells them that Jesus is telling the disciples to go ahead of him to Galilee and there they will see Jesus. And yet later that day, Jesus appears to the disciples in Jerusalem. And then for quite a few days, they see Jesus in Jerusalem. So what's this about go to Galilee? You will see him there. Well, here's the passage where, verse 16, they go to Galilee. And this is where they really see who Jesus is. And maybe this morning, what you need to do is to really see who Jesus is. Just look at it. First of all, verse 18, Jesus is almighty. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, all authority on earth has been given to me. I've got all authority. I've got authority over Caesar. I've got authority over uh, Pilate. I've got authority over you. All authority in, on earth, all authority in heaven and on earth. I have all the authority in the universe. All authority is mine. I've got authority over everything. I mean, they'd seen Jesus before have authority over demons when he cast the demons out of legion. They'd seen Jesus have control over the wind and the waves and the weather when he said, peace, be still, and immediately it was calm. They'd seen Jesus have power over sickness when he healed the blind man. 
making Jesus have uh, authority over death when he called Lazarus to come from the tomb and the dead man came. And now he says, now he says, I have returned, returning to the glory that I had from the beginning with the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we have our little doubts. We're confused about this. Well, look up. Don't look at the fog. Look at the sun and see that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. When I was a little boy, I used to be given my pocket money. I was given double my age in old pence. For when I was five, ten pence a bottle. And I could do whatever I wanted with that money because I had authority over people. I could give it to my brothers and sisters. I could. I didn't. But I could. I could put it in the offering box at church. I could. I didn't. I went to the sweet shop. And I could spend it on anything I wanted because I had authority over people. Now, my mum had a money box which had the school bus fares and everything in it. I wasn't allowed to touch that. No, but I had authority over people. And Jesus. You see who Jesus is? He is almighty. It's not just that he's powerful. He is all powerful. Not only is he almighty. Secondly, verse um, 19, he is the second person of the Godhead. Second person of the Trinity. Look at verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Not the names, the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit, but the one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What is the one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? God. Jesus Christ is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead. Now, of course, we find it really hard to get our head around <laughs> understanding the Trinity. When I lived over uh, where Tiago lives in Carnarvon Close, I, I used to come to, into the office here on a Sunday morning, and there was always a guy who lived down at Carnarvon Close who would take his dog with him to the newsagents, and he would get the Sunday Times. And the dog would carry the Sunday Times bag in its mouth. It made for soggy reading, but at least he didn't have to carry it. But I just thought, you know, there's the dog with the Sunday Times in its mouth, carrying it along, and he doesn't have the ability to understand one line. Because he's got a dog's mind trying to understand the Sunday Times. Now, even with a kind of man's mind, I can't struggle with the Sunday Times. But how on earth can we, with our human minds, understand God's mind? You know, there's God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Can't get this, grasp this. It's, it's like one-dimensional, trying to understand three-dimensional, isn't it? But there is the truth there. Baptize them in the one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's no wonder that the angels from heaven burst into song in the sky when Jesus was born. It's no wonder the sun went black when Jesus died on the he's co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. He's God. And here we are thinking, 
Oh, he's made a mistake. <laughs> it's not that he's doing things wrong, it's that we aren't understanding what he's doing. Here we are, we're thinking, well, we're too bad, he couldn't love me. When he became man to die upon the cross to forgive you your sins because he does love you. You think, oh, I'm too bad, he couldn't forgive me. God can't forgive you because you are too bad. <sighs> we need to understand who Jesus Christ is. All authority. He is the second person of the Trinity, but it goes on. Look at verse 20. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Psalm 23 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But here Matthew ends, Surely Jesus is with us always to the very end of the age. Always. When it is where you are, he is with you everywhere, always. Now, of course, in the days of his flesh, when he laid aside his majesty, as the song says, and he humbled himself and became man, he was limited in, 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 to a space, wasn't he? But now he's returning to the glory, and he is with us everywhere, always. Wherever you might find yourself, he is always with you. I remember um, when I was living in Israel, I was, what, 18, and I was having a really bad time. And I was in Jerusalem, and so I decided to take some time out and just go up to the garden tomb, which is very picturesque, reminding us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether it's the right place or wrong place is irrelevant. I went up there, and I can remember just holding onto the bars and looking at the tombstone, thinking it's true. It's really true. Jesus is risen. It's really true. And that really did me a world of good. But I should have gone on from there. I shouldn't have stopped there. I should have thought, Jesus really is risen. It really is true. Therefore, Jesus is the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. Jesus is the one who is with us always, everywhere. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And I should have got down on my face in worship before him. Because he is Lord and he is God. This is why we meet here on a Sunday morning to worship him. But it's why you should go to work on Tuesday to worship him. Billy Graham's wife used to have a sign above the uh, kitchen sink saying, Divine worship takes place here three times daily. Because whatever we do, we should do it to the glory of God. Jesus Christ is Lord, and therefore every ounce of my being is to exist, to exalt him, to honor him, to worship him, to praise him. That's why we pray in his name. And this is why, you know, when we take communion, it's reminding us of absolute surrender to him. It's his body that was broken for us. It's his blood that was shed to forgive us. It's, it, it's the blood of God that was shed for us. Give myself to him. This is why we imitate him. We try to walk in his footsteps because of who he is. See who Jesus is. Don't look at your doubts. Don't look at the fog. Don't look in on yourself trying to find a solution to your problems. Look up there. Jesus 
See who Jesus really is. But don't just see who Jesus is. Secondly, we have to serve Jesus Christ. If Christianity was just for Columbus, then all you would have to do is read. So you come along to learn, you come to Bible studies to learn, you read to learn, you listen to uh, the internet to learn, and it's just a philosophy. Just learn, 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 learn. Christianity isn't a philosophy. It's a relationship with Jesus. And if we just learn, 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 then knowledge puffs us up, and we become like a, a pond that has water running into it, but just stagnates. We become sponge. What we need is the water to flow into us and flow through us. We're in a relationship, so we need to learn about Jesus and we need to live a life of love for Jesus Christ because we're in a relationship. And so Jesus says, look, see who I am, but also serve me. Look at these verses um, verse 19 therefore go and make disciples of all nations and you can imagine the 11th saying what we we want to get soldiers together and we want to beat up the romans and we want to conquer all nations and we want to sit on thrones <laughs> jesus no 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 you don't understand Go and make disciples of all nations. You know what a disciple is? A disciple is a disciplined follower of Jesus Christ. And we are to make disciples of all nations. We start with ourselves and make sure that we are disciplined. Disciplined in our praying. Disciplined in our Bible study. Disciplined in our church commitments. Disciplined in our service. Disciplined with our money, our time, our talents, our, our morality, everything. And then we move on to our children. We bring our children up in the teaching and instruction of the Lord. We disciple our children. And then our friends. We have Bible study groups, prayer groups. We work together. We encourage each other. We disciple each other. Then we get involved in ministries in the church, which are discipling ministries. I mean, the scouts can do games, but they can't teach the gospel. We can do games and teach the gospel. We can do something better. We can make disciples. And then we go on short-term mission service. Bit by bit, we're making disciples of all nations. This is what we must do. The, the seeing who Jesus is should cause us, first of all, to make disciples. And if we can't do it on the front line, if we can't be up there discipling young people, we should be in the background praying for them. Helping with the creche, helping with the catering, helping with the music, helping with the admin, helping with the giving, writing letters of encouragement. But we must make disciples. Deal with your doubts by being evangelistic. First of all, then make disciples. Secondly, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we often misunderstand what baptism is because down through history, there's been so much confusion. And some people would baptize babies and children other people would wait till they were on their deathbed to be baptized and there's been so much confusion that today we tend to think that baptism is just a personal testimony that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Well it is a personal testimony that I am a follower of Jesus Christ but it's 
It is a public testimony that now I am part of the local body of Christ. I belong. Uh, John mentioned this in his prayer about us uh, belonging together. You see, if you read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse about 13, it says we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. So we're all invisibly baptized by the spirit into the invisible body of Christ. And then down here where the baptistry is, we are all visibly baptized by water into the visible body of Christ, the church. Does that make sense to you? So we are invisibly baptized by the spirit into the invisible church, and then we are visibly water into the visible the local church so we're baptized in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit but we're baptized by the people who the church that we belong to so basically <laughs> in these days baptism was church membership so if you read the acts of the apostles you find three thousand were baptized and they were added to the church that day because you are visibly baptized into the body of Christ. So when Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, so that you, as an individual, are disciples, so that now you are serving Jesus Christ, not just being your own person, you're also baptized, you're part of the team, part of the body, part of the group, so you're working together. Uh, and, you know, there's so many people, they had a Bournemouth, okay, in Bournemouth, so many churches, and there are people who want to do their own thing. And so they go to a church and expect the whole church to support them in doing their own ridiculous thing. And then after three months, they're not getting the support, so they go to another church. And they expect them... They fall off the platform. And they expect them to support them in what they're doing. And it's the other way around. You don't go to the church saying, you support me and do what I want to do. You're saying, I want to serve Jesus Christ in his holy into the visible church. I want to work with you. I want to obey the orders. I want to support the ministries. I want to use my gift together. That's what baptism means. Not just a personal thing, but it's also a public thing. They're part of the body of Christ. And then finally, teaching them to obey everything Jesus commands. This is verse 20. When you realize who Jesus Christ is, you can't change his teaching. He's omnipresent here, there, and everywhere with us all. And we think, well, it was wrong on this, but I'm right. No. You can see why Jesus now took them to this high mountain back in Galilee. It all makes sense. Because back in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, Jesus takes them up a mountain in Galilee, and there he teaches them in the Sermon on the Mount. And now he comes all the way around. He shows them that he is Lord and Precious and powerful. And we're going to teach it to ourselves, teach it to our family. We're going to teach everyone to obey everything that Jesus has taught us. His word is 
our authority. So we were down in Rouse. The fog was there. It was cold. It was damp. It was dark. But the sun came out. And it made <coughs> the sun burn up all the fire. It got warm. It got dark. And it went away. And the sun came out. And you know, if you're in the fog today, look up. See who Jesus really There's an old hymn, Trust and Obey. 